This is Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. Today, I had the opportunity to speak with Sarah Williams. Sarah is currently an Associate Professor of Technology and Urban Planning and the Director of the Civic Data Design Lab at MIT. The lab works with data, maps, and mobile technologies to develop interactive design and communication strategies that expose urban policy issues to broader audiences. Sarah's work compiles geographic analysis and design. She is most well known for her work as a part of the Million Dollar Blocks team, which highlighted the cost of incarceration. Another one of her projects, Digital Matitis, illustrates how anyone can leverage the ubiquitous nature of mobile technology in developing countries to collect data for essential infrastructure. Sarah's design work has been largely exhibited and can be seen at the Guggenheim, the Museum of Modern Art, the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York, and the Seoul Biennial Cities exhibition in Korea. I enjoyed this conversation with Sarah, and I think you will too. Thanks, Sarah. I really appreciate you coming on to speak with me today uh, at a distance, though it is. Uh, which, you know, is, is especially interesting. And I want to get into how you picture a world uh, post-COVID um, to certainly uh, your life being spent around design of cities and how we work together. Uh, and I can't imagine a time when you're more, more in demand than right now. Uh, but before I do that, you, I'd, I'd love to know how you got into doing what you do, a bit about your background. Did this just fall into place, or was it as planned as it appears? Um, no, I think everybody's path is kind of winding to where they get to where they go. But um, I, I started as a geographer. I studied geography in undergrad um, and got really uh, interested in geography information systems and worked uh, for um, a GIS company uh, when I was a geographer. There's not many geography schools in the U.S., but um, I went to one and then really got interested in using one of the things we did there was work with the World Food Program to send aid ahead of time. Um, but I think one of the things that I was always interested in was design and how the design of the city affects how we live in it. Um, and, and that very much relates to geography. Um, so I went to landscape architecture school and I think, um, that really allowed me to hone in some of my, um, design skills and interest in, uh, public space, um, but I realized it was really kind of the mashup between design and data that I was interested in, right? So as a geographer, um, you know, we could use data to kind of highlight problem areas or uh, predict potential issues. Um, but um, as a landscape architect, I wasn't doing as much of that analysis. Um, I was ultimately mostly designing urban spaces. And I really wanted to bring those two skills together. Um, 
And I thought that urban planning would be the way to do it um, because often urban planners really translate policy issues to designers or they, um, you know, essentially, I would say uh, urban planners, you know, often help make things happen in the city and they bring the complexity of those decisions um, and the different audiences to bear. So that's how I went to uh, landscape architecture, I'm sorry, urban planning school. And so I think along the way, I was just following what I loved. You know, I love design and landscape. Um, I love uh, thinking about cities and space, um, which was my geography. And then, you know, I really like action-oriented kind of results. And I think uh, for me, planning was one of the ways that I was able to do that. And so really that's what I try to bring together in Data Action, my recent book. Yeah, no, it's your, your recent book's fascinating. And I... I I I hope that everybody can pick that up. I, I, I urban planning has a history um, that is certainly pre data driven, right? And um, it's I'm curious what you think a successfully designed or uh, ur- urban design has been in the past. I mean, there, there are these things that come to our mind, like Corbusier or maybe Brasilia. And, you know, and there's ups and downs in this. Was there any inspiration that you think this was a success in the past? It's something that that in a data-driven future um, might be taken further? I mean, I think success is really dependent on the time, the context, the place, and what's needed for the public at that time, right? So it's a kind of constantly shifting, moving target. Um I think many would say Corbusier was an ideal, um, but it actually turned out to be very unsuccessful um, in implementation. You know, I think, you know, we look towards Garden City movement as, you know, one ideal in thinking about uh, walkable city, walkable, uh, kind of being able to walk to the subway, uh, but also have kind of a set of public and private spaces allocated. Um, but I, I would say as we change our lifestyles, what's good as urban design also shifts uh, quite a bit as well. Yeah, it's it's so uh, interesting for me. I mean, I, I, I travel a lot, well, pre-COVID. Uh, and spending time in different, the, the sort of joy, one of the joys of traveling is to see how different areas, different cities, different geographies deal with the their cities and the time that those cities were made. I'm, so I live in New York and uh, we sometimes seem to do things that make sense other places, but are bigger challenge here or uh, just are not sort of the way that New York was designed. And I'm curious what you think about, for instance, we, we put a lot of bike lanes in New York mm-hmm. um, and bike lanes in New York seem to be very different than going to a European city. Um, whether they work or they don't work, it's like, how do you step in and do something that you're inspired by from an older city, but maybe just doesn't fit? 
Um, I think it's an interesting question. I am also living in New York under the pandemic and lived here for a long time. So I definitely um, know what you're talking about in terms of the addition of bike lanes. I mean, I think the addition is a great thing because I think it's through adding infrastructure that we can create a culture um, which also uses different forms of transport. Um, so really, I think, you know, one of the important things is to certainly lay down uh, potential infrastructures for people to use. And I think that you have seen a huge increase in bike usage in New York because of uh, the additions of bike lanes. Of course, biking in New York is a bit more dangerous than other cities, but I think that um, many people in New York take that risk on. I don't think the bike lanes are ever going to be like Copenhagen or Amsterdam. I mean, they're not, that's not the intent and they're not designed that, uh, to that level of specification either. Right. If you think about, you know, the last time I was in Copenhagen, I mean, it's just really, it's an alternative highway on the street. Right. Um, I'm not sure that's, a vision for New York. And so I think that the way that they're designed right now is kind of an in-between to allow for some people to, to get on that infrastructure. I think many people would dream of a uh, Copenhagen for New York city. I'm not sure if that's a reality. <laughs> you know, I, uh, it's not that I want to stick on the idea of bike lanes. In fact, I didn't know I'd bring it up at all, but I sort of think about different cities and I, I, I wonder when looking at a decision like that, you're going to put in bike lanes and it certainly doesn't have to be just bike lanes. Um, we, are, are, do you have any idea if it affected uh, shifts in traffic patterns? I mean, have, has there been more or less traffic? Have there been more or less accidents? Do you have any idea how this has turned out in New York? I mean, that's a great question and a question that everyone would want to answer but I think it's hard to say cause of effect from the data. I mean, we do see increase. Hey, I'm counting on you being the data expert on this. I know, in, in, in this call, come on. In this, in this question, I think it's Sorry. So hard to say whether bike lanes are reducing traffic. I just okay, don't think okay. we will ever be able to determine that. There's too many factors. But I do think we can determine shift like mode shift. And so we do see an increase in people switching from uh, cars to bikes. And we see an increase of people shifting from public transport to bike. So in terms of that data, we can see that it's taken people out of cars onto new um, modes of traffic. The problem is, has it reduced traffic? Probably not because we see at the same time increase in Uber usage, right? So there's right. a of different, that's what I mean about dimensions. But I do think the inclusion of bike lanes along with it has seen a shift of people to new mo- modes of transport to work. Yeah. One, th- one thing that we definitely saw is a reduction of traffic due to COVID. And it's interesting to 
think about and an increase of bike usage. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Actually, that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> there, and and you, I wonder what the lasting effect of that'll be. You know, do people get used to things? And is this data that is being tracked? You know, the way the way behavior patterns during COVID for transportation um, or for how far they go from their homes uh, to get to the nearest store. Uh, normal, normal things you think about in planning, a, you know, how an infrastructure for a city would be set up. Has the data been collected during COVID that might help inform decisions after? Absolutely. I think um, there's been a lot of um, research using actually cell phone data that looks at new activities on the street, especially looking at open streets and looking at increased bicycle use um, and analyzing new ways that people are using residential neighborhoods. Um, And I think the, you know, one of the things that has been exciting about the pandemic is all of the experiments that probably would never have happened should it have not happened, right? So, you know, the open streets and the use of streets um, as a public space um, has been super successful and things that people have been wanting to test in the city for some time and it really allowed that to happen. And, you know, data, cell phone data has shown that. The question is whether after the pandemic if we want to use the streets in the same way. But I do think we've started to form certain kinds of habits um, and we've changed the way um, that we certainly navigate the city. Bike use has increased, um, and there's a lot of data that shows uh, both the bike lanes, but also, you know, just like if you're on, for example, like the Williamsburg Bridge, you know, how many, like the amount of bikes has cre- increased sometimes by 200% pre, pre-pandemic. Um, and so the question is whether we'll continue that after. Which makes me wonder, you can certainly track cell phone data. You can, there, sort of surveillance is, is much easier than it ever was, and there's probably incredibly useful data to be taken from that. Uh, is, there, is there any record of the subjective experience, whether people like to be living in certain ways during COVID uh, that they would like to take with them? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if there's been qualitative questionnaires, right, about that their um, feelings. I, I mean, certainly, um, I've heard a lot of, let's say, non-qualitative data research, right, I, um, about certain things that um, have improved people's life under the pandemic. Um, but I have not seen any uh, research on that as yet. It's a great, it's a great idea. <laughs> well, yeah, I think about it all the time because there's, and also even even if people did give answers, you're giving it in a kind of weird state of um, unusual trauma associated with with COVID. So I, I I've noticed and this is just my subjective experience, uh, that people look for um, silver linings um, in times like this when things are actually really hard. You know, things like, oh, I actually like doing Zoom calls every day so I don't have to travel. And I think there's probably some truth to that. But at the same time, do we miss human contact? 
And it, it, it's, uh, I'm wondering, as you get into, you know, your next projects, how how to consider what has been done versus what how things could or should be done and how how that data is used yeah i mean i think i think certainly uh you know people are, look for the serve of enlightening which is great human adaptability right like we're so adaptable which is wonderful i you know i do think i've heard even from my like reclusive friends people who didn't like people that much before that you know they do miss human interaction. So I think we all, I mean, but I mean, I think this gets into the psychology, like the human psyche, um, you know, how, how we, um, interact in general. I, I would absolutely say that humans by nature, like being near other humans, um, (laughs) I mean, that's just like a kind of natural fit. And I think, Certainly some of the things that have happened during the pandemic, such as um, ease of movement through Zoom and uh, kind of change in office space, um, will persist because we've learned a lot from it. So I think that we, you know, I think we are still going to have offices where we come together and meet, but I think whether or not we need to be there all the time is going to change. And I, I do I do really think how we work is going to change because of it post pandemic. Um, and therefore also how offices spaces are built and design will also change significantly as well. I mean, I know just for my part, you know, in MIT, they're much more open to having, uh, people who are living in Alabama or whatever be working for my research lab where that kind of thing uh, wasn't available to us before. So I think it's going to change the dynamic of the office quite a bit. What about the things that uh, many of us value about the vibrancy of let's say New York, but I'm sure that we could speak about other cities or if you'd rather speak about others, but um, you know, we care about being culturally diverse um, that we, we care about, I, you know, I care about the arts a lot, for instance, that have suffered during this and people tend to, you know, some people have moved. What, What do you think is required to keep New York vibrant? And do you see it as even, having lost anything during COVID? Um, I love New York. I think it's one of the greatest cities, hence why I'm here during the pandemic. And I think it still has its vibrancy even under the pandemic, I would say. And perhaps one of the reasons I'm here, I'm, I'm just, I mean, I was away the last couple of weeks and I just came back and it's just the creativity of what's happening with restaurants on the streets, the creativity around thinking about accommodating to the pandemic um, is exciting. I think there might be people who have certainly moved away, you know, perhaps for good, but I think we're going to see an influx of new creativity. I think, you know, part of, um, you know, part of the arts uh, culture of New York is really um, 
New York being an economic center and being able to support artists and their work. And I think New York will continue to be, you know, a uh, huge economic and financial capital capital and it would also therefore be continuing supporting art and artists um i think um yeah i think that we often talk about is the city going to go away and i i just you know cities have existed <laughs> since the beginning of time for the kind of multiple dimensions um you know creative artists finance um uh, manufacturing, kind of the the economies of scale that cities bring um, to us, and I think those still exist now and will exist going forward. Yeah, cities do seem to be, in, you know, incredibly resilient. I know this book by um, uh, Jeffrey West, Scale. Do you know this book? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I, I think about it often. Um, this this concept that it's amazing how uh, you know businesses are not that resilient. People die no matter what, but cities somehow keep making it through. And that, that gives me some hope as somebody who, who loves cities that we can certainly survive a pandemic. But I I actually wonder if you consider if you're taking both data and your experiences and your uh, research and knowledge of world cities, if there is anything that we can take from this time to perhaps redesign certain things um, in, in New York to either deal with the crisis or to make it better. And it may, maybe could be Los Angeles. I mean, I, it could be any place. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what you think. Um, well, I think, I mean, one of the greatest things about the pandemic is this ex- experimental space that's been created for cities to try new ways of having people come together. Um, And I think those are going to be huge lessons moving forward for cities. I mean, the vibrancy of the sidewalk cafes as one example, but there's been lots of, uh, um, let's say, short trials, things that worked, things that didn't get removed and this kind of prototyping cities haven't done enough of before and now have quite a bit of experience with. And I hope that they take that moving forward, right? That not being worried as much about uh, the risk aversion of trying certain kind of short-term prototype ideas um, has certainly come with that. I definitely think um the intersection between the street um and how we use the street is going to change dramatically after the pandemic i think it was already changing a lot before that and what i mean by that is you know before the streets were for mostly cars and freight now we share it with bikes, we share it with the Uber drivers dropping off an Amazon package, the scooter, the pedestrian, um, you know, other kinds of micro mobility um, and potentially autonomous vehicles. Um, and so I think 
this is going to be a huge thing that cities are going to address post-pandemic. How do we use our streets? Um, you know, um, do, do autonomous vehicles open up space on the streets for parking? You know, and so all these parking spots that now we've used for restaurants are part of the public domain um, instead of going back uh, because we don't need parking anymore. So I think I see, I mean, I think that's where, and I think that's going to happen in LA. I think that's going to happen in Chicago um, because it has to change. Um, Just like how Uber drops off and pickups was just such a huge concern pre-pandemic. And it will continue to be uh, post, I would think. Yeah, I love this idea that this, we had a little lab of experimentation uh, for the last year and seeing some things that work and, and don't work. And I, I assume that you're, you're taking this information and then, you know, trying to do some extrapolation. I'm, you know, it certainly will come into play thinking about autonomous vehicles, thinking about when streets do get a bit more crowded because people come back or what that might be. Can, can you give me some of your, I don't know, predictions about how different types of innovation that takes longer than the early, these early experiments. So, you know, the incorporation of, uh, of EV is a idea, but we also have, you know, the potential of flying cars one day. So how, how far do you think um, with taking these early experiments and then moving out to later in, innovations that are even maybe 50 or 100 years out? Yeah, like how can we prototype for the potential flying air or how can we prototype? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how do you take either – so, you, you know, we're prototyping some things that are just possible right now. You close down a street, you're allowed to put up a restaurant. Maybe you try a bike lane. Maybe you try these things. Is there a, a data simulation or s- something that allows for rapid prototyping of innovations that are being worked on but don't exist yet? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that there are simulations that that are done in terms of like transportation planning. So like we look at um, and what you add into it is kind of behavioral questions, right? So like, would you do this or this given this option, um, right? And then allows you to feed potential scenarios into a simulation model. Um, and even allow people to respond to certain decisions. Um, I mean, I think that this can happen a lot more with kind of creating games like that allow people to operate in that virtual space um, and see how they change their behavior based on their operation in the space itself, um, which is super exciting uh, types of work and which makes, uh, you know, virtual reality um, let's say design decisions were super interesting. Um, and I think there's been a lot of that work happening recently, really, even for architects and planners to show their design ideas before they're built to get people's reaction, behavior. Um, and I, so I see, you know, that kind of prototyping was happening pre pre-pandemic in a way, I mean, it's still happening. Many architecture firms are still using those simulation models, 
for urban design. Um, but this also happens in transportation planning as well. I think the issue there is just how do we get cities to be doing that? Because the cost of that kind of prototyping is high without for a city to do itself, right? And so that's where private invest in, investment needs to be thinking about alternative options. Yeah, I, I love that, by the way. You're cre- using a virtual reality to try to, to understand the kind of reality that we want. And perhaps if, if there gets to be something that is interesting enough and engaging enough, then whether it's public or private, will want to build it. It's a, it's you know stepping into a holodeck in Star Trek or something, and and you know not realizing that you have to get out, but it's 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 a place that you'd like to live in. I mean, I know I have kids, and they they like Minecraft a lot, and it's like building cities. You know, you're building things, and uh, you know, my nine year old son wants to be an architect. And, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a sort of natural thing, I think, of kids to want to do, they end up having these tools. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see what, what their simulated realities become if, you know, if they have, when they have a voice in society. Yeah. I mean, I think Minecraft is so interesting that way because it also teaches you a bit about how your decisions affect, uh, positive effect, right? And um, how that things, you know, the complexity, you know, in a simulated way um, is, is things are a lot more challenging than and a lot less direct than you think they might be. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, obviously MIT, my MIT students are big into Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> It is really cool. Um, yeah, definitely. And we're always challenging them um, to think of, you know, new problems to try to solve in that space. I, I love that. Oh, I know I'm jumping around here, but can you um, speak a bit about uh, ghost cities and how perhaps – uh, analysis that we're doing right now and urban planning from the past, even how those can maybe help prevent future ghost cities. Yeah, I think what's interesting about ghost cities is they're kind of uh, a way in which the Chinese uh, market has tried to ensure jobs, but has been exported as a, uh, idea, a money-making idea. Um, and I mean, to explain it simply for everybody who doesn't know what ghost cities are, these yeah, are, please do. Yeah, please do. these are, um, developments that are built in China that people never moved to. Uh, but one thing to note about them is oftentimes these ghost cities and are completely bought, like the, the apartments in them are purchased by uh, people and this is because the Chinese government encourages uh, Chinese citizens to invest in four or five houses, and this was done as a way. Uh, I mean, this was done before the Chinese ma- Chinese stock market existed, um, so it was a way for Chinese citizens to invest their money. Um, they didn't. Ha- I mean, they now have a stock market, but at the time. 
um, the height of the phenomenon. They didn't. And it was a way also for the Chinese government to um, have construction going on, to increase work and productive work. Um, So there's kind of mutual benefits to having people purchase four or five homes because it helped to keep the economy going. So it's a very kind of orchestrated um, scenario, but it's been now, I think, exported to other contexts, right? And we see it here in the U.S. where you have these luxury condos where nobody lives in them because they're just investment vehicles. Um, And I think that's the danger of, let's say, this is a phenomenon that was developed in China under a specific context, which now is affecting our housing significantly uh, because it's increasing real estate prices um, and helping to encourage gentrification in in many areas of the cities as people invest in housing that they never rent out or live in. Is it then obvious or not that with, if you were a developer and you had data to say that something would not be sold um, or that some place was overdeveloped or uh, that you know, that the, basically, that I would su- assume most developers don't have very complex data analysis. Uh, do, does this prevent this from happening? I mean, do we no longer build a big um, condo complex not based on just COVID having happened, but looking at long-term trends, looking at data from China? Yeah. I mean, I think in the American context, right, like, you know, certainly developers want to develop, you know, develop something that is going to be sellable. And, you know, in the U.S. context, being around a thriving community uh, with restaurants, grocery stores, et cetera, is, is super important for selling that real estate, I think, is still exists that way. Um, I think in the Chinese market, I think it's still um, a question. And, and part of the problem there is that developers need uh, the government to approve certain kinds of increases in amenities and grocery stores and so forth. Um, so it's it's a bit of a, a complex uh, problem when you kind of compare the two. But I think for American developers, they're like, well, wow, I don't have to get the retail in here. Or I might not have to if I'm selling to a group of Chinese investment investors because they don't care as much about that amenity or service, right? One of them answering your question. <laughs> well, no, I, I well, it it is because I don't ask questions very well either. But <laughs> so I apologize. That's that's super interesting. I'm just wondering what tools will be available. Um, so analytic tools will be available to whether it's city planners, you know, the government, whether it's private developers, which will will end up shaping all of our lives and perhaps prevent unnecessary development or development that does not improve our lives. I'm just interested in your new tools. Yeah, I mean, I think that real estate developers traditionally haven't used data that much, but have increasingly done so. 
Um, I think they do use data. They look at thriving developments and they say, okay, well, what was the mix of the retail? What was uh, kind of the mix of density? What, you know, and I think they certainly look at those data sets and try to recreate those in developments. And so um, there's a lot of new, like in real estate development companies, GIS companies, or sorry, GIS analysts that kind of crunch the data and also services. Um, I know that, um, I know like it, what's interesting though, is like, are they doing it successfully? Cause I know in the Hudson Yards development, there was a lot of data analysis of like, what are the mix that we need to make this a thriving development? Um, and, you know, I know there was a lot of data analytics put into it, um, but I'm not sure the results um, reflects that. I think, um, you know, uh, it's, it feels like, it feels like, uh, and we, will, we haven't had it open too long before the pandemic, so it's hard to know, but um, I think in any case, um, you know, my company, I have a company that um, uses um, zoning data and, and digitized all the zoning data in New York City to make development uh, processes easier as well. Um, so I think, I mean, I think it's interesting your question because you're also thinking about it from the real estate developer perspective, right? In that, you know, they might have more money um, and tools to bring to the table when they're planning larger developments. Um, I think the question is, on the other side is like, well, what about city planners or people working within the government? What's their capacity um, to use the same kind of tools? Um, and I think that they they do have that capacity, but they don't always have the money to afford the data that the real estate developers do. So I think that's an interesting kind of conversation that needs to happen as well. Yeah, I was really just bringing it up as you mentioned the importance of private money these days, especially in the United States, as compared to perhaps huge government intervention in in China, uh, where mistakes being made are are sort of suffered by, uh, you know, whatever money came from the public, Uh, which is maybe a bit different. Uh, But yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's you certainly see neighborhoods change with development that isn't always the most thought out and your whole job is to think it out and use data to do so. I'd love to just throw out some, some things and talk about, you know, how, how you are addressing them now, maybe or ever, but especially now. And um, what about using data for more equitable living society? I mean, how can we grow communities and prevent maybe Un, unpleasant gentrification, if, if if that's something to say. Yeah, I mean, I think we there is a lot of research being done to try to say predict where gentrification is going to happen before it happens, specifically to address those kinds of concerns. Like, how can we make sure those neighborhoods have protections in terms of uh, longtime residents? How can we? make sure there's a proper mix of um, housing in those communities and to really try to pay attention 
to the businesses that might get pushed out as well and support them? And so I think that's a great question. I think data can be used a lot for equitable planning. Um, and I think, you know, gentrification, predicting where gentrification is going to happen isn't easy. <laughs> um, Have you ever all. seen it work? I mean, I think I've seen, you know, good attempts. Um, and I think what m- maybe most more happens is a, is that you find a neighborhood that's, you know, already starting to experience gentrification and you can get there um, at that time and start to put in planning processes. So I think more often than not, what what comes out is those uh, neighborhoods that are in those early stages rather than predicting the next place, right? Um, but I think that's important. I think, um, you know, one thing that's going to be really important in terms of equitable planning, I think, is really how we navigate autonomous vehicles, Um because I think there can be a huge divide who between who has access to these and who does not. Um, and um, we're going to have to really incorporate that into the planning and policy and how they're allowed to be on the roadways. Um, could autonomous vehicles subsidize certain kinds of public transport um, I, I very, I'm very concerned um, that we won't be designing, um, you know, some parts of the city for these vehicles, and that's going to create a huge inequity. Yeah, I, I think that they're going to affect society in enormous ways, and I don't obviously I don't have the data you do, so anything I'm saying is just me <laughs> and some uninformed opinions. But uh, you know, I, I can imagine. Everything we've talked about from real estate prices to gentrification um, to just, I guess, living in general. I mean, if you if you had only electric cars, I mean, you had only uh, autonomous vehicles and uh, on the roads, nothing else being allowed. So you may go a few years into the future. Then probably my guess is more people would live in suburbs and get to work in an incredibly fast amount of time. So you wouldn't have any traffic issues with complete autonomous vehicles. Um, so you would be able to drive at 140 miles an hour. Uh, so it, it seems like it would change absolutely everything. I have, I have no idea how much modeling of this you've done or anybody's done so far, like fully autonomous vehicles on the road. Modeling for sure. I mean, this is like really good questions. Like, will people change their behavior? And, um, we have uh, a faculty member in our department at MIT that focuses on this. His name is Jin Zhao, and he looks at you know what kind of behaviors we might adapt um, should uh, autonomous vehicles like would we still want to live near work? Um, you know how how is it going to change like real estate prices? Right. Um, right. Well, I mean it. It has. I mean it has huge potential effects on kind of space geography, right? Um, And how we operate in cities, you know, are they still going to be concentric? Are we going to have multinodal cities, right? Um, You know, I think there are many questions still left to be open. I think one thing that, that scares me a little bit in the conversation of autonomous vehicles, though, is 
the, you know, in the push to have this innovation, you know, many states have reduced any kinds of regular regulation around their use, um, meaning like, uh, do they pay taxes? Like, you know, like who who has oversight? Sometimes the state has oversight and then the city doesn't. And like the city has the potential to lose more um, from it. And I think in, you know, reducing regulation, you know, does in fact help spawn innovation. But I'm worried if we get too far, um, we won't be able to come back. And so I guess like a great example is, you know, like allowing, you know, many cities that allowed Uber to run in their cities had huge ramifications. Like an example I know in Ghana, you know, the basically, you know, the city allowed Uber coming in thinking like, this is going to be great innovation. And then they forgot that the taxis pay a huge tax uh, to the city and basically everybody switched to being an Uber driver and they lost a huge amount of revenue, um, like significant, right? And so I think all of those kinds of things are, are potential uh, problems as we move uh, to the city. There's another great person who writes about this is Anthony Townsend. Um, and his, his recent book talks a lot about um, the future of cities under autonomous vehicles as well. If anybody's oh, cool. he's and he's New York based as well. He's at um, Cornell Tech. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea, and uh, I, I have the sense that it kind of for, forgetting the ramifications you're speaking about with tax, uh, tax and revenue, and and even, I mean, I, I get you have to uh, think about uh, inequity at any time, but just thinking about the difference if you have both on the road. Uh, is much different than fully autonomous vehicles on the road. Um, I've, I've, a lot of these things change. If you have regular cars, you still have traffic to deal with, and you know, just as if the just as you have Uber, you even probably have more traffic because of Uber. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to read that work. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a lot of interesting, like such a like right. It's a disruptive. It's a disruptor. And it's going to be just like, trans, you know, public transport was a disruptor to cities, right? It allowed us to have the streetcar suburb, right? Um, was a huge innovation in how how we live, right? Um, and, and did cause, you know, I mean, the ability to take uh, the commuter rail home, um, you know, created the suburbs and created uh, new development patterns, uh, created, and, you know, ultimately a lot of white flight um, with the, you know, disruptor of the car from city. So this is a different disruptor. And um, I think it's really important for us to do some of this behavioral um questions to figure out how we might change the city and how this disruptor might change it. Yeah. I mean, you must, as somebody that does what you do, there, ha there must be some amount of futurist in you. <laughs> what is, what is something that you would be, ex that you're extremely excited about from an innovation standpoint? I mean, I guess it could be um, using data analytics in itself, but is there 
Is there a version of a city that you would like to see? I mean, I think uh, of an innovation that people don't think about often is actually like all of the data that will be coming in from autonomous vehicles that basically creates a digital twin of the city every Mm. second. Um, And like that is like a tremendous amount of data um, that I think we'll begin to plug into for all kinds of things that will become, I think, like an a, like alternate infrastructure, um, a place to be prototyping, as you say. Um, you know, this. I, I mean, I think it'll be akin to the internet um, and the way that we use it. Um, you know, and so. You know, I think people often think about like, what is the disruptor of the autonomous vehicle itself? But I think the data that it's creating is going to create a whole new world in which we interact with um, on multiple levels. That yeah, I love this. Of it is insane. You know, I mean, we can't blind people can use it to navigate. Um, and Microsoft is already creating some tools for that. Right. I mean, if you think about it, it's a world that's you know, so detailed that even, you know, it allows a car to navigate, right? So it's a different pair of eyes um, and senses for people with disabilities. Um, and I mean, I, there's also a huge market for different spaces in it as well. Yeah, I like the, I love this idea. And we I guess we touched on it earlier when we were talking about prototyping, but that the data as things come in allows for flexibility and I hadn't thought about this, but even searchability, which when you talked about the internet, but I, maybe we can get into that. But one thing I was I have always been a bit concerned about, there's a few things we could talk about concerns with uh, data or surveillance. And, and, but when we went back and, you know, to the earlier conversation, what people are doing versus what people would like to be doing. Uh, you know, you could you could imagine taking a lot of data and seeing that that uh, human interaction is changed or human behavior is changed. But is it for the better? You know, do is or is it is is it a survival technique that is based on what is happening around them? Um, so is is designed by data design that is actually good for a city? But if you have this flexibility that you're talking about, where you're you're being able to create many different simulations and possibilities based on what is actually happening. So this city, digital twin of a city, I hadn't thought about it that way. That's amazing, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a super exciting space and just ripe for all kinds of ideas. And I think um, we'll start seeing them as the data yeah. Yeah, the sort of searchability of this too. I hadn't really thought about. I mean, there's there's a possibility to have to to envision so many different scenarios, um, and there will be and those will all be available to you. Um, I, I love that. Right. I mean, if you think about it, like you can check out like how cars are. You know, what is safe in terms of an intersection. You know, what is safe about people moving around the street? What is what if what do people like? Where are people congregating? There's so much data. There's just gonna be so much data. And I think what's interesting, however, though, is most of that data is gonna be owned by private companies. 
right? And so how will we as a public use that for a public good, I think is also another question, right? So like, as you say, the searchability, the questions we can answer, the understanding and dynamics of human interaction and space, you know, is all there before us, but it's also owned by Google or Tesla. And will they be using it in that way? Um, and what is the relationship? What, you know, what, let's say, um, like, what would be their motivation to help cities use it to design better? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a huge concern. To, you know, there, during COVID, all of the all of the concerns that people had about surveillance and tracking really switched. I think you know. I th- my my feeling is that this stuff was done without most people knowing before, and if they did, they would be concerned a bit. Uh, but then there's huge rush to do uh, disease tracking and everything that was required for dealing with the pandemic, and now there are I guess new tools available because of that. But it's it is disconcerting in some ways. What do we do with this? How do we have we developed a new set of norms that are positive or negative? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think in the United States we didn't do enough with the, the data that we had available. My personal, well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Yeah, anything positive came of such data, although maybe maybe there was, but I can't picture it. I know. I mean, unfortunately, like, I mean, it's it's a very hard question, right? Because we could have potentially been doing a lot more with the data we had available to make better plans and we didn't. And so, I mean, that has, a, and that just shows the politics of data, right? In that yeah, how we operationalize it is based on who has control over it. Right. Um, and perhaps, you know, we had, you know, it's, it's a, yeah. It, it, it's really political. Then you see, you know, other, I mean, to a different extent, you see countries like Taiwan who really went extreme on their surveillance, right? I mean, and that's why they have almost no cases in Taiwan at all. But that also meant that everybody had to agree to give all of their data, you know, over. They were being tracked. They were being monitored, you know. And um, that kind of lack of personal privacy is, I don't think, anything that we would ever see in the United States. Um, so it's, you know, it's a trade-off, right? Uh, it's, well, yes. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 I guess it's whatever we put the most urgency on. I mean, it's, it's really clear to see the failings of our country response to COVID, then we have to think, well, is what is urgency to, to build cities differently? What is urgency to deal with autonomous vehicles? So do, do we take that and say that data needs to be applied and we need to have more surveillance and tracking in order to make the things that are the dreams for the cities of the future and for planning in general? Um, or do we do or are the risks too great? I mean, my personal opinion is maybe the risks are too great, but I mean, I, I think the risks for privacy are, are quite 
grade and can affect people on the margins of society tremendously. But I do think, um, you know, like some of, some of the data analysis that could have been done could have been done in a way that protects privacy. And I mean, there, there, there were some things that could have been done while maintaining privacy that were not, um, done or implemented. Um, but I think it's, 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 I think always when we're thinking about, um, these kind of surveillance systems, I'm, I'm not sure that the benefits outweigh our personal privacy, but I, yeah. 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 I, t- I tend to agree with you. And I also think that, I think this question of who to trust um, becomes, you know, I, I think a lot of us have thought about it during the pandemic and a lot of us before, after, you know, we mentioned uh, public surveillance programs like Taiwan. And then we think of, you know, what has generally been surveillance in the United States is a mix of public and private. You have surveillance for everything that goes down to, you know, your buying habits and advertising. I mean, it's still it's still big data surveillance uh, that's done on a private level. So it's you know how much is how much do you know you're being surveilled or not being surveilled and for what means? Well, that's I mean that's yeah I mean well what's interesting about that right is if you think about the amount of information that's being surveilled by us, it's done by private companies who really have you know, through our license agreement, have ability to do anything with that data, right? And I, it's interesting, right, because government doesn't have the same access to that kind of information, right? And um, I, I think what's interesting about it is that government benefits from, they can actually buy that data and then they can do things with it. And they don't have any, let's say, government oversight on that use of that data, right? And how to protect us as individuals, right? So government kind of benefits from this data being in the private market, right? Um, And so I think there's a huge disconnect right now between um, like private companies who own massive amounts of data about us. who can pretty much do anything with it that they want because we've signed our license agreements away, right? And then we ask those private companies to self-regulate where they have no interest to do so. And then on the other side, we have a government that's not regulating the use of that data or saying how that data can be used or trying to create protections around our use because in a way they benefit from that lack of regulation Right. So we're kind of at a, uh, a standstill here. Right. Because, um, you know, the government will continue to not regulate this information as long as they're benefiting from it. So that's where I feel like a lot of lobbying, um, you know, public interest lobbying needs to happen in order to get stronger regulations around the re- use of private data. It's so confusing because you're into ideas of personal freedom versus corporate 
surveillance versus, uh, you know, government regulation, which doesn't ensure personal freedom necessarily, unless it does, it may, you know, benefit tax. And who knows? It's a very complex web of how to use big data. But I got the conversation with you, though, has gotten me thinking a lot more about you know, your students, my kids uh, using Minecraft to design cities and do in the end, and then using, if you did have these simulations and virtual uh, settings that were created from a, a twin of what is going on in an autonomous vehicle city or even drone data, whatever it might be, uh, it could get very, you know, what happens when a society does start Uh, playing around on almost an individual level of what they want their world to look like based on this data. Uh, It's it's then it's not about trusting either a a company or a government exactly. Uh, It's it's very different. And I don't know how you deal with it. Uh, I mean, that's such an interesting question because you're like kind of saying that when what happens when the non-expert gets involved with planning the city in a way. Um. Yeah. Well, think about, I mean, you know, I, I think that one thing that's come out of COVID is that we don't, I mean, at least I'm skeptical of authority right now. <laughs> you know, there and a half a million people die, you know, or, you know, th- these things, you know, you, it, it, you know, I'm skeptical of corporations too <laughs> right now. Yeah, I'm skeptical skeptical of surveillance from Facebook at the same time as I'm skeptical that any public health official will give us accurate information. So it's a very, very strange time. Well, I think what's interesting about that is like, basically, you know, it's that it, I would say it's the plethoration of fake data that has made you skeptical. Right. And I think that what we've seen in the last four years is an overwhelming amount of fake data in the in the world and and not being able to know what data is truth versus fact right um and i think we've all become skeptics under the climate um and the ability for fake data to proliferate and get distributed and quickly over the web through sources that you trust. Like I think about this often, you know, like when, you know, the people who believed that Trump won the election, they believe it because they have fake data to support it, right? Like that, that, and that they have become skeptics as well. They don't know the difference between fact. And so they're they're going to who they trust, who's lying to them, right? So it's like, it's uh, it's very. I mean, dealing with fake data is something like we really need to address um, in years to come because it's 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 made it hard to. I mean, it's it's completely hard to operate when you don't know what's real or not. Right, or or having some toolbox or method for people to be able to analyze data themselves so that they and that's a difficult thing to do i mean it's it's, you know it's complex it's uh, statistics and mathematics and difficult environments you're dealing with but there there must be some tools for instance i can't imagine so uh you know to go to the other side of it to say that this is sort of a uh 
bipartisan um, distortion of data or something during um, COVID. I mean, you had uh, our mayor in New York, uh, you know, in, you know, early April, say, you know, with, without a mask standing in a crowded subway saying, use our, our public transit systems and you don't need to wear a mask, you know, you, so you have our authorities that, that do have access to the data. There's not a single virologist in the world that would have thought that a mask would not have helped. So it's really, really hard. Now, if you were able to see something that is pretty intuitive, uh, then how, you know, how to get that into people's hands to be able to recognize political maneuvering or corporate maneuvering is something that might be most inspirational and possible when it comes to urban planning, because it could be a lot of fun. You know, to, to build the future is a lot of fun. I think so. I have a lot of fun thinking about the future of our city. So I agree completely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, though, like helping to recreate trust in our news sources. I mean, I think with the pandemic, like things like. I mean, nobody knew what they were doing at the beginning. <laughs> Yes, and we still don't actually, right? Uh, we're just here. We're just hearing double masking is good. I mean, why wouldn't it be good? I don't. Of course, <laughs> but, but this is a thing: is that what we've we've got to not trust. So generally, human instincts can be pretty bad about some things. You know, we have all these inherent biases, but you know, it, you don't have to think that hard and really reach. <laughs> you know, reach into your own mind to realize that if you're far away from somebody, for instance, you're not li- as likely to transmit a, a, a pathogen. You know, there are all these things that, you know, we yet we have people that are supposedly looking at the data and telling us the opposite and then, you know, recalibrating our instincts. Um, it, 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 I mean, that's good. I mean, that's what's so interesting about data, right, is it's powerful. So, you know, we believe the data, right? So if you produce fake data, it's powerful. It's a powerful tool. I mean, and definitely was operationalized by, and I mean, over a long history, it's been operationalized for political outcomes, right? Um, You know, I mean, I think, you know, Oh, kind of manipulating data is probably one of the oldest tricks in the book. Um, and I think what's different now is just the ability to for that to travel quickly, right? Um, over the internet, through places like Facebook and social media, that we don't go to, let's say, validated sources or known sources like we did before, right? Like going to the, you know, you used to go to the New York Times or the Washington Post or you Chicago Tribute, you know, like to get, you know, as a verified. And I think it's like in a way kind of mimics turn of the century, you know, uh, yellow newspapers, right? Like newspapers were, you know, they were, you know, at the turn of the century, they, they, it was hard to know which one was, you know, telling you the right story. And I think through societal norms and others, we, you know, created bounds and rules upon how 
journalists or news traditional newspapers should operate. And I think that's what's going on right now, right? Like Facebook's trying to decide, like, do we let Trump come back, you know, if he doesn't lie? You know, these kinds of like, they're like now starting to, they have to create their own, let's say, societal norms that like happened with newspapers in the past, I think. Yeah. I just first I, have I, to admit that they're media. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was, I did one of these with the, um, uh, you know, with the CEO of, of Fortune magazine, and we talked about the, the sort of, um, you know, the, if you think about the glory days of media, it really only lasted, you know, between I don't know the nineteen fifties and two thousand and six or something. You know, it, it was always this sort of yellow journalism before there was always there was always propaganda. And then you had the really nice era of journalism where, where there seemed to be fact-checking and there seemed to be uh, – and, and now we're back in, in, in a kind of troubled place. But I was just thinking about I, – I know I get st- – I'm stuck on the sort of uh, gamification of real data for, for building. Um, is there is, – can you imagine a scenario where we're not reliant on – authority in the same way where there is raw data that is available and multiple different models that you can run that raw data through so that we so that you know if i wanted to double check it with one um you know a google a neural net uh the you know a tensorflow neural net or i want to take um you know a, a, a different uh data translation software run multiple simulations yourself with the raw data is that something that is being looked at putting into individuals hands um i think there's i mean there's obviously more open data available and more tools online that allows you to do things with data i think having novices like ask questions with data can lead to some problems in that you know you don't know you're not accounting for the bias or you you basically come out with results that um are based on just not knowing proper procedures to analyze data itself right so like i guess an example would be you know if you take for example like i did a study once like where i took I geocoded all of the images in the Getty image database to see the location in which people talk about arts and culture events. And what came up is, you know, Rockefeller Center is like the height of arts and culture in New York City, where we know that that's not really the case because it's maybe presenting those biggest venues that would be captured by Getty, but not capturing kind of the smaller galleries or open spaces, right? And so it can be, I guess when I'm opening it up completely to anybody could lead to a lot of potential, let's say, misguided results. Um, I do think to make data more accessible, we should have something like data intermediaries or um, they they have different names for this, but kind of um, like Google had a version of this where 
you sit, you know, people who help uh, both, you know, navigate um, the terrain between private institutions and governments. They help with license agreements. They help provide access to the the data ethically and responsibly and also help um, think about ethical, let's say, questions that you could ask of it. Um, and I think that's that's exciting. Like where these data intermediaries um, and their their potential to really help citizens have access to data and information. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I think that the thing of humanity going forward is as as AI gets more powerful, as whether it's uh, neural nets or some other form of of, uh, of AI, uh, it becomes more and more important that humans just learn how to ask the right questions of the data rather than ask the questions of another human. Um, we will always be, it should be, you know, our, our discourse could be about what questions to ask rather than how to solve the problem as our AI gets smarter um, and if, if the data is presented to you. So suddenly, if you're asking a neural net to, to, do, to do something, it has to be a very specific question so that it doesn't lead to, to an answer that is, that is misdirected. Um, I find that really interesting and could usher in a new age of, of discourse that is different. Do you see that at all happening in, in yeah, whether I it's mean, in urban? Yeah, I like these questions, this is what ethical AI is all about, kind of really exposing that whoever asks the questions brings their own bias to the table. Um, and, you know, when we apply AI to certain questions, like certainly the people are going to bring their you know prejudices to bear. I would say the same thing is true about um, data itself, right? What data we collect isn't neutral ah, either, right? Um, true, true, yeah. Right? And so, like, you know, when you were talking about, like, if they could access it, right, like, just the types of data we collect has a lot of biases in it. So I think, you know, this is the biggest issue. We're asking all kinds of questions. We want to explore AI. We want to explore its potential, which is exciting. I mean, the potential, you know, AI has great potential to find patterns, um, and to understand phenomenon, but um, we have to interrogate um, both why we're asking certain questions and what prejudice we might bring to bear when we ask those, right? For sure, for sure. And I think that's, you know, in Timit, uh, you know, the recent conversation about Timit Gurbru, who... Um, was, you know, left Google because of, you know, some of her conversation about the ethics behind how Google uses AI, I mean, is a good example of this, right? Um, I think it was, I think it's great, like, that they have somebody internally um, assessing, you know, and trying to expose their own bias. Like, it's like, you know, kind of a internal check, like, because you might not even realize your own bias. But I think what's interesting is that it, it was hard for them to then act on things that were exposed, right? Um, and, uh, and I don't know if you know this case or not. But sure. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
I mean, I think, I mean, I think absolutely Facebook's, Google's, Apple's like need to have these um, ethicists internally to really examine, um, you know, their biases, but they need to be able to act on them. Right. Well, it's, um, yeah, it's very difficult when something's in a black box of, of an AI. If you're in a deep learning network, it's you can't it, you can't sort of dig in and find a hidden node that happened to be the bias node. Just like it's really hard to find the neuro, you know, the synapse in our brains that caused us to be racist. You know, it's a very it's a very difficult thing after a while. Um, I, yeah, I'm, but you're right. There 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 has there's probably something that needs to happen up front. Uh, you know, and the thing is, this, this all can get very, uh, you know, either, I mean, in, in all the stuff that we've been talking about, we're right on the borderline of a dystopian or utopian sci-fi film, right? <laughs> and I think that, uh, you know, this sort of pre-knowledge that you would have of somebody based on their uh, code that they've written and analyzing it or surveilling them in different ways is, could be very scary. But also, if you don't do it, then it's stuck in your neural net. So it's really a weird time for this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, you know, absolutely necessary. And I think that being open, you know, in a way to critique is really important, right? I mean, I think what's interesting about Google in the situation, right, is that like they were so nervous of exposing, let's say, the bias that they didn't think about. I mean, I personally think like, you know, if they should have exposed whatever bias it was and saying how they're correcting, it shows a lot more honor than, or I guess, um, I don't know if yeah. that's the right word, um, a lot more dedication to being ethical um, than to trying to kind of push it under the table. And I guess, you know, in a way it's hard to, as you say, ever really pinpoint where that uh, bias came from because it's, you know, it, it, but rather that it exists. Well, often, but I, I guess it, you could even go one step further though, is the more you try to pinpoint it, the more you're surveilling and the more you're, you know, the, the, the more rights you're looking into to protect people looking into other, it's all, it all goes back to the same thing of how to use data when, when humans are involved and, you know, when, when there's such big stakes on a personal or on a more global level. I mean, I love how you say it's, that's all how it kind of when humans are involved, right? Because you're exactly <laughs> right. We're like biased individuals, all each and every one of us, right? And so, how you know, how do we make sure, you know, like we can we code in ethics? I don't think so, right? So it's a constant work in progress. <laughs> yeah, and and and, it, and the more you think about it, the more complex it becomes. You know, the the biases that we have that are survival biases that may be necessary. You know, so there's there's all sorts of of, of interesting things, especially if you're creating an AI, and and a company and a society, and it sort of moves out from the individual in a very way that can can then start to diverge if you're talking about an artificial intelligence at the same time. But, but this is all going to matter as you're doing planning, doing urban planning, because you're going to be using data in such a way that is, you know, dealing with things like bias and 
and individual rights versus societal rights versus what's good for a for now versus what's good in 50 years. I mean, it, all of these things being influenced by data, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I think what's interesting too, at this time, I mean, if we're going to reflect on it is that, that, you know, data has always been used. I mean, well, in, at least in American cities, data has absolutely been used to marginalize communities. Absolutely. And, you know, that is part of the history and planning of our cities. And how do we change that way of using data, I think, is something that cities really need to face. And as we address issues of equity in the city and some of the equity issues that came up in the during the, the summer, I think, you know, we we have a call as urban planners to change the dynamic of how data has been used historically in the cities and really change our framework. And um, I think, you know, for my students, all the urban planners, I have a call of action to them to change the way that we structure data um, and plan the cities to think of new mechanisms, um, as you say, maybe even virtual game mechanisms in which to make those plans that are not based on this long history of marginalization. Yeah. I, I, you know, do, do you picture a, be- a beautiful, what, what's the beautiful city and world or, or even how one manipulates um, data or plays with it that you can imagine? Like uh, what would be like the most ideal? Yeah. Let's, let's hear your dream. I mean, I, you know, my son will say to me, you know, if you had three wishes, what would you have? I would say, well, you know, I'll have a, it was interesting, actually. It seems like it has nothing to do with your, my, my questions. So maybe I'll cut this, but my son says to me, you know, if there was a genie, you're not three wishes, you know, what would you want? And I said, well, you know, I don't know, a replicator from Star Trek. That's what I work in nanotech. That's what I want. And uh, I said, and, and maybe a holodeck. And he said, you have three wishes. Why didn't you ask for the entire enterprise? And I thought, ah, oh, that's that's a good point. <laughs> you know, it's like the thinking one step too small, even when you're thinking really big, it kind of puts something into perspective for me. I mean, wow. Like, <laughs> I'm like, what could I, I mean, you know, like if I'm going to go big, like eliminate poverty, but that's a huge, <laughs> that's yeah, a huge we'll go. you know, I mean, I think, you know, how we address societal problems, we don't often take them on head on, right? Like, you know, like issues around poverty cause all kinds of other tangential issues, right? Um, whether they be crime, homelessness, um, you know, uh, um, you know, lack of proper education, right? Like all of these things like stem, you know, in a way from poverty and and making sure that everybody has the ability um, to work. And I, 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 you know, I'm not, I mean, that sounds very communist. I'm not, a, like, I'm not thinking of it in that light, but rather I do think we need better social support systems for for those in poverty. And so I'm not saying let's like give everybody, uh, you know, 
I don't think communism works as an idea, but I do think that we could be more supportive of uh, all people in the community. And through that support, we create better cities. Um, absolutely. Like cities with less crime, cities with, you know, people who can access jobs. And um, I don't know. I think that's idealistic, but I mean, it's a lot more complicated. Than oh my that. God. No, I, I, geez, I could get much more idealistic than that. If we want to go down that path, I just wanted to make the enterprise. <laughs> but... And if we can use data to expose issues around poverty, if we can use data to help think about ways to solve, you know, the economics of cities to help make increase work and production, all those things are, you know, going to be are a great way to use and deploy data. Oh man, well we're, we we should, we need to go into that another time. There's so much we could explore with with the potential of the world we want to build. Uh, and, uh, well, God, I've talked to you for an hour and a half. I, I, is there, this is a new world for a lot of people that would listen to this. I mean, I say that I speak to, you know, physicists and of course that's a new world for a lot of people too. And I speak about jazz to some, but uh, you know, if, if you, if people are going to be a part of this uh, solution to how we, uh, you know, how we create cities, how we get back, and how we use data, um, what is what is a way that they could engage or at least start to read about things? I mean, just reading your book, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about just how we can all get involved. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what's great uh, about designing cities is there's lots of um, ways to get involved. I think first it's really, you know, knowing what's going on in your city and community. And I mean, really at the local level, like uh, what's happening in your neighborhood and street. But I think in terms of like thinking about resources in which you can um, deploy or use data. I mean, I think if you're just, um, getting started and you want to know about data in your community, I mean, basic census data is available to us online. We can get access to it. I mean, I guess you're more thinking about materials for how we use data and design. Um, and what you know, I don't think it, I don't think it matters is if is, I, I think people can be pretty creative if they start to know where to look. And I think reading your book is a great idea. Did I want to over self promote there? <laughs> okay, well, I, I that's, said it. I, I think guess it's that's absolutely idea. why I wrote the book. Yes. Um, it's like I wanted urban planners, Davis, novices, like um, I wanted, you know, people who are curious about this data and how they can use it to have something that's accessible to them. I find a lot of big data books are too technical. Um, and don't help you really think about potential solutions. So I hope that everybody comes to read Data Action to really get a starter or a primer on how to use data in our cities. Uh, thank you so much, and I agree. Uh, <laughs> thank if something you. positive, if something positive <laughs> comes out of this hour and a half, it will be that people <laughs> go and, and and get this get this book. But I think in in general, I, we have a lot to think about. 
uh, <laughs> you know, I did cleaned it up with as many questions, and that's good. <laughs> well, thank you, Matthew, for thank some you. really interesting questions. Um, I really enjoyed talking with you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, me too. Well, even though we're both in New York, the ne- ne- next time we do something like this, part two, we'll do in person. I know. I can't wait till in person. Which proves why cities are so important. We will never die. We love to see each other. <laughs> oh, you know, we had this this interesting. Uh, I've noticed. So I live on a little block in Brooklyn. You know, one of these side blocks. Yeah. And uh, and my my family was in France. My my wife is French, and so my wife and kids were in France over the summer. It was kind of lonely, and I got I got to know all of my neighbors. We went to the restaurant at the corner. That's a friend that a friend owns, and then everybody in my block, from an opera singer to um, you know a retired a retired woman who was an artist, you know, to, to a trumpet player who I ended up recording an album with, we all met in this tiny area and going to the same supermarket and the same restaurant and bar. And well, this is hyper local, and a time where we're not traveling, and I wasn't all over the world. I got to know my neighbors. And that this is actually possible uh, makes me rethink cities, you know, and you know, all this stuff is uh, in, in, informative. And I wonder where that appears in data, you know, it's, it's so just experiential. I guess you could see it and track somebody's movements, but those movements could also be, I'm miserable doing this, <laughs> but it turned out okay. <laughs> anyway. I don't think I'll include that on this interview, but it's just something that I thought <laughs> I mean, about. it's a silver lining. I think we've all gotten to yeah. know and enjoy our communities better and then realize the value of the like place that we live. I mean, I I even moved during the pandemic because I wanted to, you know, a better community. You know, like the, yeah. like, you know, I think we have, yeah. And I think that it might, you know, be a trend to have really hyper- local communities and more, you know, more workplaces that are nested in residential locations. And I think um, that would be really cool. I mean, it's certainly a a dream of mine. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Let's meet in person. Okay. Talk to you soon. (laughs) Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for talking.